was here. You're sitting kind of. I'm sitting. Okay. So this is our second uh, book study, Bodhidharma's uh, teaching, Zen teaching of Bodhidharma. And um, we got as far as uh, page 17 in the hard copy. So I'm going to pick up from there. Actually, I'm going to pick up from a paragraph we read last time, just so we can overlap and uh, remind ourselves what it's about at this point. So page 17. But suppose I don't see my nature. Can't I still attain enlightenment by invoking Buddhas, reciting sutras, making offerings, observing precepts, practicing devotion, or doing good works? No, you can't. Why not? Now, as you know, as you remember, it's not a dialogue with someone. The question is there just so then, at that point, he can answer it or he can explain. But the question does come up often, obviously, when we read that, so why not? If you attain anything at all, it is conditional. It is karmic. It results in retribution. It turns the will, the will of samsara. And as long as you are subject to birth and death, you will never attain enlightenment. To attain enlightenment, you have to see your nature. Unless you see your nature, all this talk about cause and effect is nonsense. Buddhas don't practice nonsense. A Buddha is free of karma, free of cause and effect. To say he or she attained anything at all is to slander a Buddha. What could he possibly attain? Even focusing on a mind, a power, an understanding, or a view is impossible for a Buddha. A Buddha isn't one-sided. The nature of his mind is basically empty, neither pure nor impure. He is free of practice and realization. He is free of cause and effect. So, to be free at this point is... Actually, this is to understand that we don't practice being a good person. We practice being. And from being come, obviously, that kind of action. But the practice is not practice of something in particular. It's just practice of being. The Buddha doesn't observe precepts. The Buddha does not do good or evil. So what does it mean to not observe? Let's just talk about this for a few minutes. The Buddha does not observe precepts. Anyone? I mean, we take vows, right? We, we take precepts. What does that mean? Things that are made up in your, uh, in your way of life. Say, I'm sorry, say again. In your day life, you, you, know, you, you see things differently and you, you build something up on it. Okay. You know, but it could be... Go ahead. I'm sorry, he doesn't need precepts? Well, then, yet, then what do we do with precepts? Then, you know, because we do take precepts. We have Jukai. Right? We, we do, but the, you asked, does the Buddha follow, yeah. follow precepts? Right, but we don't separate between you and the Buddha. Oh, I see. So then we're back to how do we not need precepts if we take Jukai? What does that mean? Because if we see our nature, sorry. So. If we see our nature as Buddha nature, then we don't need to separate how, how we behave from our nature. Precepts, it's not rules. It's, it's a way of nature, of the universe, how it's working, and you're working with It's not rule, don't do this, do that. It's not obedient of something. 
So to not need, we, the Buddha does not need precepts. What, what do, you, do you want to say something about that? <laughs> you may talk about it. <laughs> well, I think it, it depends, on our, depends on the vantage point that we're looking at it from, right? When we operate from the perspective of Buddha, whatever, or however we choose to define that, right? It's, it's beyond the discriminating idea of good and bad, healthy or not healthy, precepts or no precepts, right? So it's, it's the context from which we, we, we operate. And once we operate, or once we see it through that lens, then we are free, and there is reason to take them up. But we do it from a, from a different point of view. Okay, so, so different point of view by what you're saying is on a fundamental level. See, here he's saying the Buddha does not observe precept. Right. Right. So, to observe a precept means what? It means there is a subject and object. Right. It means there is, you know, well, here is what I'm doing and here's what I'm not doing. Right. Right? So, there is a decision making and there's a process there. Right? But he's bringing it to the ground. Right. From right. which action is just action, right? right. It's just that. Right. right. So, being in alignment, you know, it just is, you don't observe the precept because you are the precept. Right. right. If you are the precept, then there's nothing to observe. Right. And this also has to do with, uh, for us, in terms of practice, level of embodiment. Mm -hmm. how, how deeply are we embodying the precepts? Mm -hmm. Right. So if, as long as we you know, put them on the wall and try to follow them, there's always going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. Sooner or later, it's going to be a problem because life will, will, will clash with the precept. Mm -hmm. And then we say, well, do I choose the precept or do I choose something else? Right? But this is going to a much more fundamental level mm -hmm. from which precepts are maintained naturally. Mm -hmm. Can we think of it that uh, the precepts are con conceptual thought and a big Buddha is beyond conceptual thought? Why are you in this? Working towards getting toward non-conceptual thought. Right. right. <laughs> it's, what's important here is that we don't create new separations. Right, so you know we don't want to you know take the practice on and then create a separation between me and Buddha. Yes, because we we all have Buddha nature. It's 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 the essence, right? So in essence, yes, that's what it is. That's what we are. We can act in different ways. We can act in according with or against. But even acting against is not really not being in alignment which is what actually we talked about in Doksan, but um, even being confused is not outside of that. No, nothing is outside of that. Nothing is outside of that. You know, to have a narrow view does not mean that the rest of the view is not here. But it means we operate under the falsehood of a narrow view. Still, Buddhahood is Buddhahood. Then it's not really something that you don't grow in Buddhahood. There is no growth in Buddhahood. You see, there, no, there may be changes in the way it is manifesting, also in the way you are, you are embodying it, actualizing it, but you never grow in Buddhahood, you never are reduced in Buddhahood. It's just our, our perception changes. Right, everything changes and nothing essentially is different. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So, uh, a Buddha does not do good or evil. A Buddha isn't energetic or lazy. Buddha is someone who does, not, who does nothing, someone who can't even focus his mind on a Buddha. Again, that creates a gap, right? If I need to, if I focus on attaining something, then I'm caught up in where I am and where I'm not. Not the gap. Um, a Buddha isn't a Buddha. Don't think about Buddhas. If you don't see what I'm talking about, you'll never know your own mind. People who don't see their nature and imagine they can practice thoughtlessness all the time are liars and fools. They fall into endless space. They're like drunks. They can't tell good from evil. Now here brings good and evil as two roads, two paths, right? Which is not, I mean, it may sound as if he's negating what he said before, but it's actually not, right? Because we can function in many ways. This is not wrong. If you intend to cultivate such a practice, you have to see your own nature before you can put an end to rational thought. Now, can we, it was a question, can we uh, see that through rational thought? Can we rational our way to realization? The question. And what happens when we... Go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, no. I, so, you, on one hand, you can't rationalize your way to your essential need. You can't think your way through it in the way that we normally think about, the way that we normally understand it, right? So, logic, analysis, philosophizing, moralization doesn't get us any closer to our essential nature. And yet, the essential nature contains rational thought. Right, it's how it shows up. It's right, right. So it's both, but right. It's not getting rid of. Right. It's expanding. Yes. Seeing, the, seeing a bigger view, yep. seeing things as they are. Yep. Uh, seeing beyond the feeling of limitation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So feeling limited does not mean being limited. But it doesn't mean you, we should ignore the fact that there is the limitation. Right. Right. right? Because that won't make sense either. Right. So to recognize Buddhahood does not mean to ignore being stuck. Right. Right. And to achieve a non-thinking mind doesn't mean to not be rational. Right. Because everything is included. Okay. Right. Good. Let's go on. Uh, so. Does anybody else have that? Still others commit all sorts of evil deeds, claiming karma does not exist. They erroneously maintain that since everything is empty, committing evil isn't wrong. I, this actually, uh, you remember the three perspectives, right, that we, we use when we study the precepts, uh, the black and white, the relational perspective, and the fundamental perspective. On the level of the fundamental perspective, um, nothing matters because there's nothing that uh, can be put together, nothing that can fall apart, right? But obviously, if we operate from there without understanding, without deep understanding, then yes, we can create um, all kinds of atrocities, thinking that it doesn't matter, because nobody can die, because nothing is born. It's not, not true, it's just that how we understand it, how we move by that, makes a difference. 
So nothing is born and nothing dies. And we chant that too. So such persons fall into hell of endless darkness with no hope of release. Those who are wise hold no such conception. But if your every movement or state, whenever it occurs, is the mind, why don't we see this mind when a person's body dies? So what is the question? If we are greater than, if, we are, if, if there is formless in the form, why can't we see that when the form dissolves? Any thoughts? What is formless is invisible, right? How is it invisible? Now, let me ask you this. Is it not invisible in the way you walk, in the way you speak, in the way you sit down, in the way you eat? No, it's visible there. That's how it shows up. That's how it manifests, right? back to Nagarjuna's teachings. This is what it is, right? The only way formless manifests is through form. Right? So why can't we see it? If we look at it this way, we, are, we, we, we hold on to an idea of there is something behind. So when the barrier dissolves, we hope to see it. But what we call the barrier is, is already what we want to see behind. Right, so in that case, then the mind would be this person's dead body? and the person who is looking, and those are not separated. Do you see? It's, it's everything is included means nothing is outside of it. Being deluded or being realized. Everything happens in that, in that mind. The mind, again, is not the mind, it's the mind. Maybe in Japanese it sounds more like it, right? Shin? It's not, you know, when you say that in Japanese, you're less likely to point to the head, right? Mm. It's a much greater understanding of mind. So it's consciousness. What is that? In Japanese, shin. 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 Heart mind. Heart mind. Right. How is that? How is that what? Not going to your head. Uh, because well, what, I'm, what I was saying is that for a Japanese person, it's not going to the head. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm wondering. I'm wondering what that's like when you hear that, because when when I hear that, you know, I can. Is it different? Because we go to translation, and translation is already connected to connotations. Right. Right, but in in the bigger way of looking at it, it includes everything. Nothing is outside of that. Mm-hmm. Knowing, not knowing, being deluded, being realized. It's all inside. Yeah, so why is it, why do we call it mind then? Why is that the tradition that it's mind? Why did we translate it to mind? Is that what you're asking? All of the texts that we read, or this one especially, maybe because, okay, so maybe we should look at mind not as brain. Right. Right, that's that's one way. Brain is brain, and then mind, for us as practitioners. As vastness, right? Yes. Mind is is no, uh, no form. And brain is the tool that we use. Okay, mind includes brain. He talks about that further down, you know, in, in the book. He talks about the water and the fish, right? That wa- the fish comes out of water, but water does not come out of fish. Do you remember that? That's coming up later. Mind acts the brain and body. 
the mind functions, the brain functions in the mind. But even, even okay. Yeah, but for example, if somebody, if somebody is unconscious, right? If somebody is in a coma, it doesn't reduce anything. It doesn't reduce mind, right? All it does, it is this particular uh, uh, form is limited because of that condition. But formlessness or mind is not limited. Right? So that particular body, that particular form, has its own limitation. At the same time, it's not limited. Because it is at the same time mind. So, so maybe we can call different name to mind, and if we can do that, what's going to be the mind? Yeah, call it here. Call it this. Okay. That's it. No, but let's say if I'm going to say instead of mind, soul, consciousness, okay. instead mind, it's going to work the same way? Or? Uh, I don't know. It depends on the connotations. Because even the word consciousness, we have to just be careful with the connotations that arise. Not to not... Uh, pay attention, but just, you know, realize the connotations will arise and move on. Don't get caught up by the connotation that arises when you hear a word it's very, or you very, read something. It's very, very... Mm. It's refined. So, so can I just add one thing? So what's, what's fascinating to me about this conversation is that it is effectively the same in one way debate that was going on a thousand years ago, right? So we can all, I think we all agree that when we say mind, we don't mean brain, i.e. we don't mean some kind of physiological, mechanistic thing, physical thing in our heads. We don't, none of us mean that. Okay. But there was, a, there was an incredible debate that ensued, right, about a thousand years ago in which they were talking about, is it mind only, or is it no mind? That was the debate that was going on, right? And they were having this conversation around, no, when you get to the ground, right, when you realize the ground, what's left? Is it mind, or is it no mind? For me personally, I always felt that that debate was kind of just an academic thing. Is you want to call it mind, you call it mind. You want to call it no mind, you call it no mind. You're both referring to the same thing, this thing that is larger than um, the physiological processes. It's like larger than our comprehension. Right. So we put this name to it to try and describe it, but really it's beyond, it's, it's just beyond that. But that's right. why you cannot live, see, mind is no mind, essentially, right. right? Because it has to be no mind. Right. Because if mind becomes mind, then that becomes another thing to hold on to. Right. So that goes back to move. Right. It goes back to realizing right. that everything is, is really, you know, not what we think it is. Right. No, but this raged on between enlightened people for 200 years, this debate went on. Yeah, and this is ancient text. Mm -hmm. I think it also goes back mm -hmm. to not knowing mm -hmm. and to trusting. We all know that there's something out there that makes us this. And we'll never completely understand it while we're in this form. Mm -hmm. 
and you just have to trust that and get beyond the words. Yeah, I mean, so, so functioning, you know, the way we function, to be comfortable with, <coughs> to be comfortable with not knowing, to be okay with that, and to realize that it's not wrong. Nothing is wrong. I mean, what we feel, what we think, but it's not wrong. It's not personal. It's not against. It's not for. Right? So if, you can, if we can step away from that, then that by itself already opens us up to the greatness of mind. Right? Just that. So it's not creating. It's just getting away from where we get caught up. And then trusting. Yeah. yeah. When I think of the mind, I think of like all awareness. Yeah. But when I think of the brain, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm using the brain. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm using the brain mm-hmm. to think about the brain. Right. Or think about whatever, you know, yep. a problem or... Access things. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get caught up, right? Meanwhile, we're not caught up because that is in the same mind. Yes, of, the all, same nature, of the same nature. Of the same nature. But reality narrows down very quickly mm-hmm. to our own perceptions, our own images of it, right? Well, the patterns, right? Yeah. Actually, yeah. Just, uh, this was Shin. Shin. And the mind is different. So, and for us, the uh, Shin is also we call Kokoro. Maybe Kokoro, yeah. Kokoro. Yeah. Kokoro. 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 Yeah, Shin and Kokoro is the well, same thing. Yeah, that's yeah. Not, that's not hot. Yeah, yes. But it means that the, um, it's more like an instinct. You, you knew it and you don't have to express it because you, you instinctively know it already. That's mm-hmm. Kokoro. And you put the uh, Ma and Ma Gokoro means Ma is true, true heart. So mm-hmm. Ma Gokoro means when you um, to be kind to someone, then you you really coming from pure heart, mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. no, no calculation, no, no gain, just it's just, direct. Just mm-hmm. just show your pure nature is kokoro. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's like when people saying, "I put my heart to what I'm doing." It's not mean that physically they put in the heart. It's something <coughs> deeply that. Maybe something very, very fundamental, very, very strong. Where, like, people using this form of language, right? But it's not physical, and that's maybe what you try to say, like uh, mind of heart, like something very, very fundamental, very, very strong, deep, profound thoughts uh, or action about it. Often expressions are yeah. It's very very confusing because like that's actually now I understand when you like in the beginning beginning uh, when <clears throat> Buddha say it's wrong that we are trying to teach Zen or Buddhism by by saying that that's already wrong. It's not about word. It's not about understanding it's not about action so this is exactly the the, the stuff that we've talked to understand what we're talking it's not about the words it's not about expression behind that it's something that you have to 
and this is also difficult. Accept that, and that's it. That's how I understand it. It's something that needs to be uh, uh, realized. It's something that needs to be experienced. If it's not experienced, then it doesn't amount to anything. It has right. to be. This is why Kensho is essential. Right. But now it's more, uh, just a little bit more understandable. By the way, Kokoro, uh, in, in officiating, uh, there's a point in the service that I point one, two, three. And that's Kokoro. That's the three dots. Sometimes Kokoro is drawn in the three dots. And that's part of the service, part of the officiating, that you point one, two, three, which symbolizes Kokoro. So, yeah. So, uh, let's go on. So, and is what you're doing and saying different from you. There's no, it isn't. But if it isn't, then this body, I'm sorry, if it isn't, then this body is your real body. And this real body is your mind. And this mind, through endless kalpas, without beginning, has never varied. It has never lived or died, appeared or disappeared, increased or decreased. It's not pure or impure, good or evil, past or future. It's not true or false, not male or female. Right? So it does not appear as a monk or a layman, an elder or a novice, a sage or a fool, Buddha or mortal. It strives for no realization and suffers no karma. It has no strength or form. It's like space. You can't possess it and you can't lose it. Now you can't possess, you can't lose it. You know, this, when, we, when he speaks about the triple emptiness, or when he talks about the greatest gift you can give to the world is the gift of self, it comes from that realization and it supports that realization. When the self is given freely, then you operate from that endlessness. And so you tap this endless fountain and that fountain expresses itself through you in a way, rather than you do something with it. But in that, there is a letting go of an idea of a separate self. And that's where the practice happens, actually. It's mostly on that, on letting go of the idea of separate existence. And when that imagined wall drops, then all that's left is this. And naturally, it flows from there. So it is... Uh, you can't possess it and you cannot lose it. Its movement cannot be blocked by mountains, rivers, or rocks, rock walls. Its unstoppable powers penetrate the mountains of the five skandhas, right? The five aggregates, five skandhas, and crosses the river of samsara. No karma can restrain this body, this real body. But this mind is subtle and hard to see. It's not the same as the sensual mind. Everyone wants to see this mind, and those who move their hands and feet by its light are as many as the grains of sand along the Ganges. But when you ask them, they can't explain it. They're like puppets. It's their theirs to use. Why don't they see it? Why don't we see it? It is operating through us. Why don't we see it? Because we haven't realized it experientially yet. Yeah, that works, because we haven't realized experientially. When we do realize experientially, then there's no question. That's all that's left. I, I think when you're, you're, living, you're living it without any thought, 
just being spontaneous. But once you put your mind to it and you don't have it, it's not there anymore. But when you it's not it's not like living a blank mind, you know, like like a, a zombie or robot. Mm. You know, it, it, there's no dichotomy. You know, it's uh, <clears throat> you exist, you live. You live and you die within this. Yeah, Living and dying happens in that. Yes, living and dying happens in that. But uh, you know, we, we do have other interruptions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like that, right. interruptions. <laughs> but you ask, you, ask why, you ask why don't we see it, right? We don't, we don't see it because in order to see something in the way we normally see it, it has to be out there. It right. has to, you're here looking at something out there and already then there's a separation. You yeah. can't see something that's already in this. There's nothing, you, there's nothing to see, you can't... Right, this is where the expressions like um, the eye does not see itself, the knife does not cut itself, the ear does not hear itself. That's where those expressions right. come from, but that's where they point at. Right. I think that, that goes back to what we were saying about the precepts too. Why does the Buddha not observe yeah. precepts? Because in order to observe something, it has to be something separate. Like, right. So there's a subject and an object. There's me and there's the thing that I'm following. Right? Yeah, and yet the precepts are essential because we are, because we think we're stuck, then we operate based on that, right? So then we turn to the precepts and we operate, we work with the precepts, and the precepts support realization, realization supports precepts. So it is essential, <laughs> right? So as for practitioners, for the sake of practice. So, um, the Buddha said people are deluded. This is, this is why when they act, they fall into the river of endless rebirth. Mm -hmm. And when they try to get out, they only sink deeper. And all because they don't see their nature. Now, one of the things about Bodhidharma, obviously, that, you know, and that began the change between how Buddhism was practiced up to that point and then in regards to Zen from this point on, very much to the point, Pointing to the mind, pointing to the souls, over and over again. That's where it is. Here it is. Right? And, and it's very clear in that way, but at the same time, it can be very difficult. Because it doesn't involve anything else. It's naked. And often, you know, we want to dress things up, because we don't like nakedness. So we dress things up, we dress them the way we think they need to look. Right, so then we paint colors and all that, and then what happens is that we get caught up in what we put on it, thinking that it is what's behind it. Not realizing that this is our own creations. Which happens often in, in, in religion. Right? You know, the, the, what we call rituals, you know. Yeah, that's the extra. But if we don't understand that it has to be a representation of or expression of, then we get caught up in the appearance. He does talk about appearance later on. So if people, aren't, if people weren't deluded, why would they ask about something right in front of their eyes, right? Right, right there. Why would, we, why would we ponder? Why would we not trust? Not one of them understands the movement of his own hands and feet. 
the Buddha wasn't mistaken. Deluded people don't know who they are. No, not knowing, not knowing Buddhahood make us act as if we're not. Right? Not knowing Buddhahood, not experiencing Buddhahood, we create something of it. And then we act based on that creation. And it says, it's also called the unstoppable Tathagata, the incomprehensible, the sacred self, the immortal, the great sage. Its names vary, but not its essence. Which is important to know that, so we don't get caught up in the names. The many names, the many epithets that the Buddha was referred to, right? But it doesn't really matter. Buddhas vary too, but none lives his own mind. The mind's capacity is limitless, and its manifestations are inexhaustible. Seeing forms with your eyes, hearing sounds with your ears, smelling odors with the nose, tasting flavors with the tongue, every movement or state is all your mind. At every moment, where language cannot go, that's your mind. But what about language? Let's maybe talk about it for a minute or two. What about language? You said no words, Kyoto. But what about words? Is there anything wrong with words, with using them? Apparently, yes. <laughs> Hold off on that. Let's find out what other people think. <laughs> Is there a problem with language? No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. It all depends on But then one word can you know, start a war, mm -hmm. right? And one word can create great peace. Depends how you use it. And it's our nature to use words. It's our nature to communicate. And so we've evolved to be able to use words and to speak. Then well, how do we function in Sashin? Yeah. I'm not saying we have to use them, but I'm not saying I'm saying there's nothing wrong with using them. No, not not to negate anything, but just but to bring it up to for discussion. What about Sashin? In Sashin, the we take away all that, right? There's no eye contact, there's no being nice to anybody, there's nothing. No, that just quietly functioning, well, doing what's needed. there's other forms of communication other than words. Okay, other forms of communication, right? So something happens, it's actually a miracle, right? Something happens, people feel close to each other, I think often even closer to each other, without words. Mm -hmm. And without even knowing each other before, as, as happened the last session. Right? You know, so people come from different places, right? And we're all together. And yet, we don't speak and we don't even need to speak. Mm -hmm. Sometimes words create a separation between yourself and the other. The so-called <clears throat> Sometimes words create separation, right? Sometimes words are there only to strengthen the gap and not to uh, bridge the gap, okay. right? Uh, uh, words can be comforting for us. Right? It can give us a sense of self, a sense of borders, a sense of uh, security. Here's what I know and here's what I need to express. And if I express it, then I feel good because I know something. Mm -hmm. So is it wrong or is it right? And this is the, the, the most uh, critical question. This is right. Let's say there is a people that need to understand, deeply, profoundly understand any subject, anything. You cannot explain to them without words. 
At the same time, there is the story of the Buddha when he give, took the flower and gave to... He didn't give, he held it up. Yeah. yeah. And he smiled without word, without anything. And this flower, the, the, he understood everything in one second, without word, without... So there is a very, very fine line between if it's the language necessary, the words necessary or not. And the answer is not 100% yes or no. There is, there is no answer for that. That is impossible to have an answer. I can, can you use words to make somebody understand something? No. Sometimes, no. yes, sometimes even that you're going to explain the best way with a language, the best language that you can find with the right words, he's not going to understand. Well, so, I, okay, even beyond communicating adults, right? Um, I, I'm a special education teacher and I have a nonverbal student in my class. Um, and there are times when words are um, necessary for the other kids, but words are... Um, he doesn't even know how to say them mm -hmm. because, well, going beyond the reasons, it doesn't it doesn't matter why. But um, so his form of communication is through touch and through a sense of what's going on and um, through his own in his own little world. Yes, but uh, coming out more, but. Um, when I communicate with him, it's usually through touch. He needs to touch things. He mm. needs to see you. He needs to know that you're there. And I think the most profound form of communication in my classroom, even without the nonverbal student, you know, even with the, the other kids who are a little more verbal, is, uh, is that deep, energetic connection um, of, of love and care and compassion. Because when they reach out to me, uh, words are not necessary, you know. See, what, what's important is what we realize, or what needs to be realized, does not need words. We use words, but what we point at with the words does not need words and is free of words. How we use words makes or breaks it. That's always, it's not, there's nothing wrong with the word. As by itself is not good or bad. Right? It's the same with emotions. As they arise, they are neither good nor bad. It's how we proceed that makes the difference. What we do with it that makes the difference. Also, from, from where do we speak? If we speak from a, from, with an agenda, right, to protect something, to defend something, we're already caught up. Even before the word is uttered, we're already caught up. So the word is in the service of protecting a delusion or an idea of separate existence. But if, the, if we begin from ground and we speak from ground, then it doesn't matter which words you use. It doesn't even matter if you say something or, or stay quiet. It doesn't matter. You know, what's needed? How do you, to the best of your ability at that moment, can convey that to this person? That's the question, right? So it may be with words, it may be with a hug, it may be with saying nothing. It may be by walking away, right? But then keeping it all open is not limiting to words or silence, which brings it back to practice, right? to, to truly practicing. You want to say something? Yeah. Say. 
<laughs> I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying, but this is like a little bit off from the real life because, you know, this is a saying, it's kind of funny way, uh, the love uh, to woman going through ears and for men through his stomach. So it's it's mean like if I want to express my love to woman, I have to tell her that. I have to talk to her. Instead of man, I don't say nothing, give him a foot and that's it, you know. So it's maybe really really saying here a lot. I mean this is a kind of a joke, but this is completely true. I mean you want to express something that very deep and most of the people if I'm gonna look at them and I feel deepness of some emotions, they're not gonna catch that. For them, I really have to say something. And there are some people that I don't need to say nothing, only one look, and it's be enough. So it's very, very difficult to, to you know, not be with, without words or talk, and to be only with, you know, only emotions, touches, or see. But is that true? I mean, is that, is that really true? So if you were to look at a beautiful this piece of art, yeah. or listen to a, a beautiful piece of music, right? Yeah, that's exactly. Can, yeah. can, could I explain to you why? No, no impossible. I just say look, or just listen. And you experience it in a very different way. But at the same time, I agree 100%, but at the same time, maybe words, uh, highlighting or uh, boost mm -hmm. the, 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 the feeling sensation. Example, like you say, beautiful pictures, or oh, it's beautiful, that's it, right? But if you're going to put that the, 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 the painter was in such mood or in some situation, it's elevate this yeah. piece of art, right? So it's very difficult to say to be with words, without words, talking, not talking. It's maybe it's a relevant to the connect with something or you're not. Just like with with this, yeah. you're gonna connect with it and sometimes you're open and you're ready to connect with it and sometimes you're not. You look at a beautiful picture, yeah. there's no words to describe it. Mm -mm. You just feel something. Exactly. Feel to, to, the, to the point of mm -hmm. uh, wondering at the moment what was that person feeling yes. that they created this Absolutely. beautiful picture. Yeah. The same thing with the melody. There's music that you that listen to and it's like you would get elevated to heaven because it is just so beautiful mm -hmm. and moves you. But you don't know how or why. And you cannot explain that to anyone else. This mm -hmm. is something that you're feeling. You're connecting to something much, much grander yep. than words. Yep. So, you know, you and if you put a word to it, if you, you destroy it. You just bring it right down because there are no words to express certain things that you feel deep inside. So it's very, very you difficult know? to say this feeling. Well, we're not we're not trying to figure out whether words are good or not, but but, but this this is ongoing practice. You know how we use words. Also, the, the, what's important is to to remember no gain and loss. Uh, so by saying something, nothing is gained. By not saying something, nothing is lost. It's not that right. And there is the urge sometimes to say it because we think if I don't say it, 
I'm going to lose something or something will be lost. Nothing is lost, nothing is gained. And then that goes, of course, you know, to the what we're doing with uh, Ango, with to, to humility, right? You know, to, to practice from there, to speak from humility. Isn't it always important to remember to speak with loving kindness mm -hmm. and compassion? Yeah. So that's part of How, the original right. teachings, yeah. But then, then in that, sometimes... Uh, words can seem very harsh, mm. right? Yes. And and we think that's not kindness, but it's not true. If it's because often, compassion. often <laughs> compassion, right? Often compassion, you know, can be the opposite of what we want it to be, right? But you know, what we want is not necessarily what we need or need to hear. So, in terms of teaching, in terms of yes. guidance, right? So, again, to keep it open, to not define it, right? to not define it at all, to not fall into our own interpretations, our own boxes. Um, so, moving on, I don't know what page it is in the hard copy, but uh, I'll try to read it and you guys will find it. Buddha is Sanskrit for what you call aware, miraculously aware, responding, proceeding, arching your, your brows, blinking your eyes, moving your hands and feet. So, what he's saying is here, is Buddha is everything you're already doing. Did you say it again? I skipped, yeah. 29. 29, there you go. 29. Already, yeah, we have to. Well, we're not going to go, yeah, we, we did uh, bring it up. We're not going to go through the whole book word by word. That's on you to read. Second paragraph, page 29. Yep. Yeah. Right. It's all your, your miraculously aware nature. And this nature is the mind. And the mind is the Buddha. And the Buddha is the path. And the path is Zen. But the word Zen is one that remains a puzzle to both mortals and sages. Seeing your nature is Zen. Unless you see your nature, it is not Zen. I mean, it's just, again, you know, talk about words. This, these are words pointing at the truth. Very simple. To the point. And also, no wasted words. That's another thing, right? No chit-chat. There's no chatter there. There's no, you know, like, for example, gossip, right? You know, that's, that's a lot of useless words which many are engaged in often, right? So, so he's saying here, uh, seeing your nature is Zen. Unless you see your nature, it's not Zen. It comes down to that. Even if you can explain thousands of sutras and shastras, unless you see your own nature, unless you see your own nature, yours is the teachings of mortal, not a Buddha. The true way is sublime. It cannot be expressed in language. Yet we use language. We chant, we, we talk, right? We, there is verbal teaching. And, and it comes down to how we use it. How we hear it, too. It's not just how we use words, but also how do we listen to words. What do we want to see or hear? I give an example of uh, when I was when I went to teach that class about Buddhism, and 
someone asked uh, if I consider Buddhism a, a religion or philosophy, and this comes from how we, we what we want to hear, right? I come with boxes, and I want to know which box to put it in, basically. So, I, and, and, and I started by saying that Zen is not going to fit in any box. So don't even try, because it's not going to fit in any box you have. Or it's about the box itself, rather than what's inside the box. So, another way to say that. So, going down the paragraph, it says, the way is basically perfect, it does not require perfecting. Now, this is something that, uh, obviously, we hear a lot and we've heard. Um, we're not here to create, to perfect. We're here to recognize and realize, and then stop creating the extras. So then we can be in alignment with what is. And it's a lot of practice, for sure. I mean, it's not something that like we read a book and we realize it. We have to actually venture out to this, for this. If you know that everything comes from the mind, don't become attached. Once attached, you're unaware. But once you see your own nature, the entire canon break, uh, becomes so much prose. It's thousands of sutras and shastras only amount to clear mind. Understanding comes in midstream, mid-sentence. What good are doctrines? Now, now here what he said, you know, so we do chant, but how we chant? If we recite, if we recite sutras over and over again without an understanding, it's not going to amount to anything. <laughs> the ultimate truth is beyond words. Doctrines are words. They are not the way. The way is wordless. Words are illusions. They are not different from things that appear in your dreams at night. Be they palaces or carriages, or forested parks or lakeside pavilions, and this is interesting, right? Because often, you know, we sit and meditate and then we try to create some nice place to go to, right? Because maybe we don't like what we see or we try to escape and we create what he's talking about. But the ultimate truth is beyond that. So keep this in mind when you approach death, he says. Don't cling to appearances and you'll break through all barriers. A moment's hesitation, and you'll be under the spell of devils. As, as we say, when one thought is raised, heaven and earth are infinitely set apart. One thought. Anyone who gives up the transcendent for the mundane, this is next paragraph. Anyone who gives up the transcendent for the mundane, in any of its myriad forms, is a mortal. The Buddha is someone who finds freedom in good fortune and bad. How do we understand that? What does it mean to find fortune, to find freedom in good fortune and bad? Not being attached. What does that mean for you? He's not being attached to, the, to, to an outcome. It's neither good nor bad. You have no way of, of 
making our minds up or deciding in this particular moment whether some event that has just happened to us is good or bad, because we don't know where that's going to lead us from here. It's just something that's happening in the moment. So and not judging, not labeling. So freedom, yes, that freedom of allowing your mind to just, oh, now this means this, or this means I can go here, or this means this happened, so I have to do this. It's, 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 I can see being free of that. See, to avoid the temptation to comment or to go with the commentaries, right? This is what is right to avoid the temptation to go with, where we feel we feel that the pull, right? We feel that magnet, right? When we avoid the temptation, then it's not it's neither good nor bad. Mm -hmm. You have to add to the story. Hmm? You have to add to the story of the situation that just happened. You create something that does not exist, but you create, and then you believe that it does exist. Yeah. Because we believe what we think. There is a saying, um, there is no difference between samsara and nirvana. The difference is a matter of one's perception. Yeah, Shakespeare said that, right? And nothing is either good or bad, just the mind makes it so. He copied it from the Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> he said it Somebody went up to Tibet and got it for, for, for him. It's not like the Buddha had exclusive access. No. You know? No, I mean, this is something. No, and that's it's, right, it's, right. It's, it's actually right. Nobody copies from anything because, you know, when we recognize, we recognize the same truth. No. Right, so. Yeah. But that's how you can go into a situation that. Most people will say, oh, this is hell, this is horrible, this is samsara. And yet another person will say, will find the, um, to use a Christian word, redemption. You will find the goodness within that situation. It's a matter of your perception. And when, as you begin to perceive as a Buddha would perceive, then you, you don't make the judgment good or bad. Do you remember that uh, Kwan, it was a Kwan, uh, Leming Peng, uh, when uh, actually he was, you, you remember Leming Peng, some, some of you, uh, the Kwan, that uh, this dialogue between, uh, he said something, his wife said something. So he said, difficult, difficult, like trying to cover a big tree with sesame seeds. Oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then she said, easy, easy, like putting your feet on the, on the floor when you get out of bed. <laughs> and the daughter said, neither difficult nor easy. Us, uh, actually uh, realized family back then, all three of them, um, deeply realized family. But uh, so difficult, difficult, like trying to cover a tree with sesame seeds, right? It's impossible. And then easy, like walking, sitting, laying down, eating, drinking. Natural. But it's neither this nor that. And neither easy nor difficult. Because when we look at something and we need to do it and we do it, by itself it's neither difficult nor easy because it doesn't have difficulty or easy in it. It's how we perceive it and the label we slap on it. And then very quickly after that we respond not to what we're doing but to the label we slap on it. And then it does become very difficult. Right. And that's where words can pose problems, right? Because I mean, the role of words is really to slice up reality. And to yeah, if they're used for that purpose, yes. Mm -hmm. But what are they in the service of, is the question. Right? I mean, you know, if when, you, when you read this, these words are not slicing anything up. 
Right? Words. English. It's not slicing anything up. It's actually showing unity over and over and over again. But the neither are difficult nor easy, the neither good nor evil. How do we explain that in, in our, I mean, you know, in this country, in the world we live in? How do we live with that? I mean, you know, look at what happens all the time. I mean, on a weekly basis these days, right? Sometimes twice a week. Right? I mean, how do we... You stay between that. Is that evil? You stay between that. How do you stay, how do you... You're aware of it, you, you, you see it, but you don't have to identify it. You just you be natural. Natural. You're aware of it. That's enough. Yeah. You're aware of it, but also, also we have to realize that nothing is outside, right? Outside of mind. Nothing is outside of that one. Even inside. even what we saw a week ago in, in, in New York, in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, even that is not outside. One is one. The one mind. It does not, the mind itself does not have good and evil in it. We could, you know, this is the pure land, we could, you know, it's up to us to make it. But this is it. We chant it. Which means we have great responsibility. Right? So, uh, down the next paragraph, anyone who gives up the transcendent of the mundane, in any of its myriad forms, is a mortal. The Buddha is someone who finds freedom in good fortune and bad. Such is his power that karma can't hold him. No matter what kind of karma, Buddha transforms it. Heaven and hell are nothing to him, but the awareness of a mortal is dim compared to that of a Buddha. Who penetrates everything, inside and out, right? So. Yeah, to penetrate everything inside and out is to see through what we call heaven, what we call hell, what we call realization, what we call delusion. It seems like he, he doesn't even pay attention to any of this. He just goes about. But is that detachment? Is that, is that not caring? Because no, that can appear or that can sound as, as if I don't care, I'm at peace, everybody else, you know, do whatever you know, they want, and uh, it's their responsibility to, to realize. But that's a preconception. <laughs> but th that's the question, is it raising that? Right, because I got my peace, I'm good to go. Is that what he's saying? But it all depends, right? It all depends what he was feeling. Yeah, but how do you see that? How do I see that? Yeah. I see that as uh, just going along with, without, any, without any mundane thoughts and feelings. I see it as he's living life and not taking in delusions, illusions, and he sees life as it is. He knows, he's aware of uh, pitfalls and... Right, we're aware of that. But, but living, I, I don't really have the word for it. You know, living, uh, we call it natural, you know? 
yeah. being unaffected. So in that, in that, the, something needs to happen for what you're describing. Something needs to happen for this to actually be this way. Something has to happen. Yeah, and what needs to happen is there's a letting go there. And it's the letting go that enables one to actually function this way. What you but describe. he's aware. He's, he, his, uh, his, uh, we, we call it, we, we call it essential nature, mm -hmm. right? But it's, look, you're in life, you're born. You're born, right? It's like you're, you're wanting a toy, you're gonna go. You know, it's up to you how you're gonna go. But uh, Buddha, you know, and his awareness, you know, he, he, he saw through all that, and he, and he stayed like between lines, you know? We're, we're in that peace, in that calmness. So to stay, okay, so to stay there, yeah. does it mean to avoid something? Does it mean to not go to no, where? No, you live, you live. Okay. You live and you accept, Talking, well, talking about the middle way, is, is that what he's trying to say? I think so, but, but even in the middle way, right, to not go to extremes, it doesn't mean to not, that middle way, we call the middle way, includes everything. It does not reject neither this nor that, right? right? It's middle because it's not rejecting, mm -hmm. because everything is embraced fully. Not turning away, right? right? Bearing, it's actually no. There is a term called bearing witness. Bearing, bearing witness to bear witness is to experience the pain and the suffering, and the horrific acts that we see, quite often these days, right? To bear witness to the suffering. So, how do we find peace in that? Is the question in relation to what he's saying. Right, because it's painful. You you can't deny the pain. Well, I think that that too comes down to a realization and understanding your place in the world. Right? There's a story of a woman who has many many coins and she comes to a third world country and she hands a coin to a child and then twelve other children appear and she hands out twelve more coins. Soon she realizes her, her purse is almost empty and if she keeps giving out coins, she's gonna be begging herself. Right? So she realizes her place. That doesn't mean she doesn't care that she can't give out any more coins. She actually has now an awareness of, you know, her place in the world and how she interacts with it, what she can and can't do. <coughs> so in relation to that, the one thing I just want to comment that the, the giving that that we talk, we speak of, is a giving that is that never ends because it's an endless fountain. What what. This is why you said the greatest gift you can give is the gift of self. Because mm -hmm. once this is given, then your life becomes giving. Mm -hmm. And it's endless because you're tapping into some to endless fountain. Right. You see, and that's your true place. Yeah. How you do it, of course, you know, you talk about you know, different talents. We all have different ways of contributing, of sharing, right, of helping. Absolutely. But what we tap into and what flows through is endless. Right, and doesn't that come back down to our Zazen practice also? Yeah. And the fact that we do this, yeah. the fact that we come here and we sit. We're not sitting just for ourselves. We're sitting for everything that exists, for, for the one, the one mind, the one Buddha nature. Yeah, there's no separation. You know, we're, we're a big part of that. We're, 
we're doing this. This is what we we're making of it. Thank you. Oh, or we're sitting for nothing. We do, we do it also. Not for any other reason. Not for anything else. Right. But that's okay. exactly what we was talking about. Doctor, me and you. When you are giving, 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 and I say, okay, if we are giving, 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 suddenly we are empty. But there is a trick here. If we are giving from us, Not a trick. doesn't matter. <laughs> it's a trick because in the end, in the end, uh, you're not gonna be empty because you're giving something very, very pure to someone who really, really need. And as much you're gonna give, this is exactly the same amount that you're gonna receive, not for yourself, to continue to giving and giving. This is what I see, it's um, um, uh, Godness, I mean, God, I mean, God give you this kind of energy or whatever, energy, money, whatever, not for yourself, for somebody who really, really needs it. You as a vessel that giving that, and you're never going to be empty. If you are pure in your heart and giving this not for any interest, you're giving this because someone needs this. That's actually... It's a, it's, it's a shortcut in a way. It really is a shortcut, you know, to, to completely give it all. So then he says, if, you don't, if you're not sure, don't act. Once you act, you wander through birth and death and regret having no refuge. Poverty and hardship are created by false thinking. To understand this mind, you have to act without acting. Only then will you see things from the Tathagata's perspective. But when you first embark on the path, this is actually very important, when you first embark on the path, your awareness won't be focused. You are likely to see all sorts of strange dreamlike senses, but you shouldn't doubt that all such senses come from your own mind and nowhere else. Now, not just when you first embark, you know, there are times through our practice that we get more bombarded by all kinds of issues, maybe we go through difficulties in our, in our own lives, and then we see all kinds of images, dreamlike. He says dreamlike senses. Scenes, I think, is that right? Dreamlike scenes? What? I think it says scenes. Scenes. Yeah, yeah dreamlike scenes. Yeah, scenes, images, right. Things arise in our mind, right? But, you know, and what he's saying is very important, is that when you first embark on the path, your awareness will not be focused. What he's saying is that while you are Buddha, you will absolutely not trust it. You come from a place of not trusting Buddhahood. Right? That's where we begin. It doesn't mean you're not. It just means you don't trust it. And it means you, be, you are operating under the falsehood of not being in alignment. So this is where, of course, you know, the, the great trust comes in. Right? The great doubt, determination, the great trust. Although you feel this way, what he's saying is don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't make decisions based on that. Don't decide, for example, this is not for me. Right? This is not my plan. I'm going to try somewhere else, something else. Because what we're basing that decision is obviously, it's false. Right? We're basing it on what we came in with. Mm -hmm. 
And then we leave and we quit because of that. And we're convinced that it's true. You may remember, there's a guy that came here some years ago, um, an older guy, retired, I think he was a professor, a uh, um, psychology professor at university, and he said, I want to try meditation, right? So he tried twice. <laughs> and then he said, I gave it a shot and it's not for me. <laughs> right? And I asked, <laughs> I laughed. I didn't laugh at him. I kind of like to laugh. I said, well, let's just say that you didn't really give it a chance. You can go. You, know, you don't have to do it. But please don't think that you actually gave it a chance. Because <laughs> that's not true. Right? I mean, the reason... Yeah, hopefully he doesn't save his money the same way, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty... It's, that's a trap. Yeah. Right, but that's what happens, right? You know, the reason why he came is the reason why he left. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What? <laughs> totally. And then he got, he got he confirmed. I knew it's not for me. Right? But who is speaking? Who is saying that? This is very important to look at it. So this is, this is an important point to not be surprised when we see all strange, all kinds of strange dreamlike scenes. And but you should not doubt that all such scenes come from your own mind. We produce that, right? Or it is uh, the next paragraph below that. Or if while you're walking, standing, sitting, or lying in a quiet grove, you see a light. Regardless of whether it's bright or dim, don't tell others and don't focus on it. It's the light of your own nature. Or while you're walking, standing, sitting, or lying, those are the four uh, states the Buddha functions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in the stillness and darkness of night, everything appears as though in daylight. Don't be startled. It's your own mind about to reveal itself. Or while you're dreaming at night, you see the moon and stars in all their clarity. It means the workings of your own mind are about to end. But don't tell others. And if your dreams aren't clear, and if you were as if you were walking in the dark, it's because your own mind is masked by cares. This too is something only you know. Now don't tell others about it, and I was going to mention it uh, a different times, I forgot. As far as koan study and how we experience koans, we don't tell others. Just so you know, this is not one of the things we share with other people. Koan study is a very personal study, personal process. And even realization, even Kensho, we don't run to tell people that I realized. I mean, you know, that, that, that desire to share with others, that, comes from the same place in a way, right? You know, it's like, I want to share, why? I mean, and it's not that it's not shared, but it is shared, it is shared in different ways. You can't help but sharing it, but not by telling others about it, by living it. Because it takes away from the realization you work on the Well, there's something in us that wants to claim ownership. It feeds our ego. It, there's something that wants to claim ownership. And that thing that wants to claim ownership has to be looked at, has to be seen through. But also that's how words can yeah. distract or... Uh, how often, well, how often actually, even when we do share... 
even when we do share, how often we want to share an experience with somebody, like what you said before. And then you start speaking about it, it's like, this is not doing anything. This is not even close to what I just experienced. Yeah. Right? Right. And then you feel like, maybe I should just be quiet because I'm doing disservice to what I just experienced. Yeah, but then how do you help somebody? Well, we don't help somebody, huh? That's the question. Yeah. How do you? I mean, if, if you don't use words... Like, he's not saying not use words. It's also an experience. To describe, to yeah. have the realization experience, a profound one. Words to describe that might not help yourself, rather. It's not about helping somebody, but sharing your own experience sometimes. It's hard to explain by words. Yeah. Plus. Like we all, we all share experiences experience like during... during whoever you explain to, that person could understand it very deeply. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. And, and you don't explain it. Because yeah, now... You know, because unless, unless you have the experience of it, sometimes yeah. words are inade inadequate. And another yeah. thing is that they might be, yes. instead of just sitting and, and seeing what comes up for them and what their own experience is going to be, they're looking for something to compare to the experience mm -hmm. that you had. Mm -hmm. And it may not be the same. It may just shows up differently. So it's going to say, well, wait a minute, I, I must be doing something wrong or something's not right because I'm not having experiences like he's having experiences like you're not. So and, also, and let's be real here, most of us that practicing a little bit longer, uh, when we coming to other people who never have this experience that we are, or talking the same language that we are, they look at us and we, we are saying stuff that we understand, all of us understand in this circle right now. But when we are going outside, that people cannot even understand the meaning behind what we're saying. So it's like, if they're not looking at us like, okay, crazy people, they're saying, what the heck are you talking about? Exactly. But, then, but then, there, then there are the uh, people who don't, practice, who don't practice the way we do, um, but still have these experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have to understand, um, even if they come from a place of not practicing it, um, we have to be open to, well, th and then there's that too. Then our, our ego is operating that way too, because we've been practicing for a long time and we know something that they don't. And they come in with an experience and it's like, hey, wait a minute, mm -hmm. I didn't have that yet, you mm -hmm. know? Or I don't, or I didn't feel that, you know. Yeah. So we end up all uh, picking and choosing, um, and differentiating. You know, people would get discouraged by that, you know. Yeah. So it's it's a matter of it's a matter of what you invite um, into your experience and others' experiences, you know. Well, I think it's I think it's how you show up too. Exactly. I mean, if you want to help someone, just be yourself. Just be there. People, yeah. You know, there's people in my life I know that that know what I do on a regular basis and how dedicated to my practice I am and this and that. They don't want nothing to do with it. I you know, treat them with the same kindness and compassion. They know that, you know, if, if they want more of that, there's there's other ways you you know you can go about getting it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think just being ourselves, being true to ourselves, our true nature. That, that's, that's 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 a that's lifetime of practice, what you just said. Being yourself, what is that? <laughs> what is this? Being true to what, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's true what you're That's saying, so but we have to keep the refining what we are true to. 
Right. So to be rooted in the Dharma, right, to be with both feet grounded in the Dharma means to always keep that, right? Because if we detach from that, then, yeah, we think, well, I'm true to myself. That's why I did what I did, right? I was true to myself. But what is that self? Right? I mean, everybody, in a way, is saying that. Right? Even doing crazy things that I want true to myself. That's what I want to do. The hell with everybody. Yeah. He killed. But I'm true, to my, I'm true to myself is a very interesting statement, right? What is that? And, and that's what we're doing. Investigating that self. Right. Right. right? I got confused when I was a little kid. My mother used to say, be yourself. Right. Be yourself. And I go, but that's what she wants you to do. Have you figured out who that is yet? Except that, but it's very, very dangerous. No. It's also very dangerous, right? Because if this is, I'm true to myself and my belief and my act, so that's what happened this last week, right? He was, he know, he's right, he have to kill. Because that's he is. It's he and he killed. Yeah, but we are but in his eyes, he himself. You know. So it's very dangerous. Let's keep going. Uh, so uh, below yeah, we have to finish soon. So if you're always getting angry, you'll turn your nature against the way. There's no advantage in deceiving yourself. Buddhas move freely through birth and death, appearing and disappearing at will. They can't be restrained by karma or overcome by devils. And then down below that paragraph, a Buddha is an idle person. He doesn't run around after fortune and fame. What good are such things in the end? People who don't see their nature and think reading sutras invoking Buddhas, studying long and hard, practicing morning and night, never laying down, or acquiring knowledge is the Dharma, blaspheme the Dharma. So basically you go against, by doing what you think, by, youth, by what you think will go with, you actually go against. We think if we do more of it, we'll actually get closer to it, but how do we practice? Right? Reciting by itself is not going to do anything. By living. People living, uh, being aware. If we, if we recite, if we lose ourselves over that self, if we lose that self over and over again to what we're doing, or to what is being done, all to the chant, all to the action, right? If we lose the self, burn the self, as Suzuki uh, says in the book, right? To burn the self completely, to leave no trace, then we are awakened to or through the action. Right? And that's, again, it's, it's ongoing practice. Being rooted in the Dharma, we work on it. So, we have to, uh, again, wrap it up. So, we're going to, uh, to be continued, but uh, let's, let's keep reading. And uh, when you read, make some notes. And if you have questions, bring them up. If you have a question, bring up and we'll try to uh, unpack it next time we, we get together. So before we do that, I wanted to see if Angela has anything to say. Would you like to say your words? Um, I don't know if I have anything to say other than thank you for, you know, skyping me 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being part of it. It was good to see you, Encho. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, everybody.